Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, February 14th, 2022. It is Valentine's Day, and it is my sister Ruthie's birthday. Happy birthday, Ruthie. Yes, born on Valentine's Day. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, uh, we... I just want to say, if you watched the Super Bowl last night, here is the narrative about America that you got from the Super Bowl. You should take your hard-earned money and you should gamble it on your phone. And then if you should happen to have any winnings, which you won't, you should invest those winnings in cryptocurrency because Larry, David, and uh, Ben Affleck and others are telling you to do so because they, of course, have... They live paycheck to paycheck like you do and therefore are, you know, really in in danger of losing all their money and becoming, you know, becoming poor and losing their homes and stuff if they happen to go the wrong way with these investments. And then after you make money on crypto, you're supposed to buy an electric car and then drive it through the metaverse. I don't really think and drink. uh gluten-free hard seltzer i don't really think these are good messages about the condition of the united states in 2022 unless you believe that we are to take nothing away from what we're being pitched by by the super bowl and of course we have history of getting pitched all kinds of insane crazy stuff uh during the super bowl that ends up blowing up speculative businesses and that sort of thing you know monster.com and pets.com and that kind of thing but does anybody have any feeling about this this um uh narrative because of course these ads cost i don't know five million dollars an ad or something so every one of these ad buys is a 10 15 million dollar ad buy i mean only that i don't know that it was ever any different i mean it was different but never any better exactly in terms of uh sort of moral message i mean the you know the the super bowl ads that i sort of remember most most were you know what happens in vegas stays in vegas kind of stuff which is really saying hey go to vegas and cheat on your wife right yeah <laughs> and buy beer uh, well you know. i will say yeah. 10 years ago that the ads were heading in a in a nearly pornographic direction and that was entirely nipped in the bud by by me too like i mean but the ads were getting dirtier and dirtier and dirtier and more sort of like giggly girls gone wild you know the man show you know jimmy kimmel before he you know got uh, attained his um uh, political transformation into a finger wagging scold uh, type of thing and that, that was pretty startling but now they've um, gone in an entirely other direction to the point of being an overcorrection they went from purient to puritanical in the space of a decade which i suppose is a little better but also an overreaction i appreciate the ads more this year than i did the last two years where they were almost entirely somber and downbeat and afraid to make you laugh they're still afraid to make you laugh to a certain they're, degree, but at least they're, they're they're no longer, you know, just wallowing in in self-pity and just, you know, exhausting uh, you know, somberness to meet the measure of the moment, whatever that is. 
There was a funny juxtaposition, right? Because you have the, there was the, one of the electric car ads had uh, Salma Hayek and, and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Zeus and, uh, you know, Hera having come to earth. So we bring the gods down to earth and force them into an electric car. Meanwhile, we're the new gods who drive around the metaverse gambling on our phones. It was actually kind of a weird thing. The most prurient and, and slight nod to times past was the, the sort of uh, wink to wife swapping when Demi Moore and, and, uh, uh, Mila other, Kunis. Mila, Mila Kunis have a sort of moment where they're like, oh, we have a lot in common. <laughs> but I actually because they were funny, both but... married. They're both yes. married to Aston Kutcher. Yeah, right. Exactly. I kind of love that, like a middle aged dude who's a late 90s rap and hip hop artist can come dangling like Luke Skywalker in that cave scene from Empire Strikes Back and, and at the Super Bowl halftime show, the late 90s, the Gen Xer in me loved everything about the Super Bowl because there were so many references to my generation. I'm sorry, that's not yours anymore, Christine. This is, <laughs> I don't know this is an appeal anymore. to millennial nostalgia. Oh God, they've turned us and they vintage. Did, and it was because it was the best <laughs> halftime show that they've had right? since right. 2003, the uh, uh, Timberlake, Janet Jackson. I know. Well, I uh, feel Super too Bowl old. I feel too show. young to be vintage yet, but I guess now officially we're culturally vintage goods. It's fine. I, 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 it is. It the is. New York Times called them oldies, which is false. Incorrect. These songs are not classic hip hop. Classic hip hop is its own genre. None of these, anything after 1993 does not fall yeah, within that This was that late rubric. 90s. Yeah, you're right. Late night. This was all late 90s. 19, 1993 was uh, the Dre Snoop Dogg right. song that they opened up with. That's right. as old as it got. And that's Look, I mean, there was a There was an Austin Powers uh, reunion ad. That's like 1997. I mean, um, it, it, it is interesting the degree to which the culture of the present moment plays absolutely no role in, in this advertising. I mean, there, there was an ad with Pete Davidson in it. There was an ad, there was an ad with Miley Cyrus in it. Yeah, but because the ad the, with we're Miley in the demo Cyrus now. was what? Because we're in the demo now. No, but the, what I'm older, trying- Older millennials are the, the key advertising demo, the 2545 demo where people actually spend money. Okay, you never advertised to kids on the, the Super Bowl. The ad that changed the Super Bowl, the two ads that changed the Super Bowl forever were Pepsi Forever. That was Michael Jackson in 1984. That was not a pitch to the demo. And the Apple, the, the Ridley Scott Apple ad, uh, which was pitched to teenage, was a science fiction ad. You know, the 1984 ad pitched to like, teenagers and college students so they would they would buy a new computer um, but they don't buy a new computer yes Their parents they, buy a new computer okay you're the, the argument that you're about now about to make to me you should not be making because i'm the point i'm trying to make is absolutely true 40 years ago advertising was pitched to people to young people because young people were brand switchers and that is the famous thing which is that it's be- as you get older you get more hidebound in your choice of brand and you are less likely to switch and all advertising is about brand switching and that is why Pepsi went crazy with its spending to try to get people to take to to switch from Coke to Pepsi that was the whole point of the choice of a new generation that was a whole ad campaign it was a real thing and that was the idea in ads now. And now it just it's happened all... to, the only reason why I know this, and it just happened to yeah. be something that I came across the other day, is the Pepsi New Generation, the, the generation line, yeah. was promulgated initially in the 1950s. The right. 1950s is when they opened up this whole, the Pepsi generation line. Yeah, but it the worked. Gen, Pepsi generation keeps, we, we're yeah. all part of the Pepsi generation. Yeah, but it worked in the 80s. Now. 
it worked in the 80s. They panicked Coke so much that Coke then tried new Coke because they were worried that Pepsi was going to take it over and they needed to change the taste of Coke in order to appeal to this new audience that was shifting over to Pepsi by making Coke sweeter. Like, this is a real thing. So then it was all about pitching to the young. And now all of American society is about replaying. This is Ross Douthat's point about the decadent society. is all about replaying greatest hits. So not only do we have your, your halftime show, but we have Austin Powers. Yeah, we have Demi Moore. We have, we have all this stuff that is intended to play and amuse people in their 40s and 50s. And that is sort of like the focus of tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars of ad spending. It's just an interesting cultural fact. Whether it, whether it matters, I, I don't really know. Well, you it's, know, I, I think it matters. I'll tell you what depresses me about the replaying of the greatest hits is that it suggests, um, and I think not entirely mistakenly, that we are culturally spent now right? right it's it's a summing up of oh this was when things this was when we did fun interesting things oh look there was also the soprano i mean the 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 most interesting ad was the sopranos ad right which was a re which was a replay of the title sequence of the sopranos like letter for letter only it was meadow it was jamie lynn sigler the kid who played the person who played Tony and Carmela's daughter Meadow behind the wheel of an electric Silverado. And then she pulls into a parking space, which she parks parallel parks perfectly. Unlike the last episode of the Sopranos where her inability to parallel park probably saved her life. According to the theory that Tony was shot in the, in the, in the Holston's uh, diner where, where he was waiting for her, the family was waiting for her and she pulls up and then she gives her, her little brother, Tony Jr., uh, uh, a hug. Um, that also just, now, The Sopranos was over in 2006 or 2007, something like that. But So that that was like the freshest, <laughs> that was like the, the freshest use of, use of IP. But just to give you an example, then we can move on. One of the biggest movies now filming is being made by Greta Gerwig, who last made the actress who wrote and directed Little Women and had made Lady Bird before, which is a, both of them are wonderful movies. Uh, Greta Gerwig starring uh, Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, two of the most dazzling performers. It's, it's Barbie. It's about Barbie and Ken. And Margot Robbie is Barbie. And Ryan Gosling is Ken. This movie was written by Greta Gerwig and her husband, Noah Baumbach, who made the best movie the last 10 years, Marriage Story. And it's Barbie IP. Barbie. We're not talking about, you know, using a Jurassic Park IP. There's a Jurassic Park movie coming out or Marvel IP or whatever. We're now talking about Barbie. And there's a Polly Pockets movie coming out. And they're sort of, you know, anyway. I don't know what to say. It's not, none of it is good. It's not bad. It could be nothing. It's just not good. Like it's not actually a good, it's not like lively, hopeful, cheerful, forward looking or anything. It's just kind of, it's kind of, uh, you know, yeah. As Abe said, like we're spent, we're spent and we're just going to, we're just basically going to retread everything until the tires get, you know, are completely bald and, without any traction and that's just going to be the end of everything yes 
is crushing morosity time. And I'm going to give you a little uh, tip on getting some good news, interesting news from Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast, formerly the Post-Corona podcast. Dan has a really great one out now. He just, just came out with the Israeli thinker, political scientist, student of Bible, Mika Goodman. And Goodman, who wrote a fantastic book called Catch 67, Goodman is kind of a uh, figure of uh, of the Israeli center, which is to say that he is uh, he is himself uh, religious, but he is um, he is does not he does not sort of pursue the general politics of 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 very religious uh, Jews in Israel. And his argument is that the new Israeli government, the one that took over from uh, Bibi Netanyahu, which is uh, composed of eight parties from the uh, right to the center to the left um, is uh, strikingly successful, uh, unlike what uh, people expected when this government was formed, and that um, Israel is now showing the way. If it showed the way as, as, a, as, a, as a country that was willing to be the sort of canary in the coal mine or the test subject for the vaccine regime in coronavirus, it is now showing the way that he says that when Barack Obama said in 2004 that America is not as polarized as it looks, he was wrong. America, particularly today, is as polarized as it looks, but that Israel is not, that Israel looks polarized, but in fact, the government is moderated and getting things done in terms of budgets and this and that and the other thing, and people are working together in a way that people don't work together in American politics, because that is what the public wants, and that this is a responsive government that is following the dictates and the wishes of the Israeli people who want to get on uh, with their lives and want to get on with their society and want their politicians to work together. Uh, that's Mika Goodman on Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast. You can go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcasts. This is one terrific discussion and fascinating for anybody who not only knows, if you don't know about Israeli politics, it will be revelatory. If you do, it will be revelatory. And if you want some idea of where, how we might get out of the, out of the um, polarized bind we're in, Mika Goodman's conversation with, uh, with Dan Sinor will help lead the way. So that's the Call Me Back podcast with Dan Sinor, and we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Guys, um, We've been trying to puzzle through uh, the finding issued by Special Prosecutor John Durham, who has been tasked with investigating uh, possible interference with the Trump campaign in 2016. Um, and a document came out either Friday or over the weekend with some fascinating and eye-opening allegations these are. This is not an indictment. No one is being indicted, and it is very hard reading this document to make sense of the timeline that is being proffered in this document. But if I have this correct, and I'm not sure I do because we've all read it multiple times and are very confused, the document says that one of the people who was indicted in has been indicted by Durham, uh, Mr. Sussman, lawyer. Uh, lawyer, outside lawyer working with the Clinton campaign, uh, who was been indicted for making materially false statements, uh, that uh, he was working in 2016 for two entities. 
One was the Clinton campaign and the other was a tech executive at an internet company known as Tech Executive One and Internet Company One. And according, if I have this right, beginning in July 2016, and it is not clear when it stopped, though we know that some information was proffered by um, uh, the lawyer in February of 2017 to a federal government agency known as Agency One, which I think is probably the FBI or therefore the Justice Department, but I'm not sure, that um, material was being gathered, information and intelligence was being gathered through the resources of Tech Company One on the Trump campaign using technical means uh, involving investigations into denial of service attacks and that there were three or four targets of these investigations into denial of service attacks. Don't ask me what this means exactly, but that one of the targets was Trump Tower. Another target was the Trump apartment building on Central Park West, which is, uh, which is a hotel. I don't even know why they call it an apartment building exactly. I'm a little confused. Uh, that's the Trump International Hotel or whatever, and um, and the uh, executive office of the president of the United States. That's the thing that should ring clang bells all over the place. What we what's hard to make sense out of is what it means that they were invest using information gleaned technically from the executive office of the president of the United States. We don't know if that means the Obama. EOP, or if it means the Trump EOP, or if it means both. And we don't know what it is, but uh, the right has gone crazy over the last 24 hours with the idea that what Durham has exposed is that there was actual high-tech electronic spying going on using the fact that tech company number one had some contract highly sensitive contract with the White House to check on its denial of service circumstances. Denial of service meaning a kind of hack attack where you send lots of messages into a, an individual given place in order to crash it. Um, and whether, therefore, this company was using this contract to gather information, and it, as he said, injurious, I think, or defamatory, something like that, to Donald Trump personally. There's one other data point we should add to the chronology, and that's the statement that Hillary Clinton's campaign on October 31st issued. She had a tweet issuing saying, a computer scientists have apparently uncovered a covert server linking the Trump organization to a Russian-based bank. And there was a statement issued by her campaign from Jake Sullivan, who at the time was her uh, America, uh, Hillary for America senior policy advisor, saying, you know, this could be the most direct link yet between Donald Trump and Moscow. So at, there was also information somehow getting to the Hillary campaign uh, around this within this same window. Again, we don't know what we don't know who was feeding it, whether they were soliciting it or paying for it. But the campaign itself is, is also to be factored into this whole very murky equation. So that's so the story now is what's actually going on, because, as I say, the right, the finding as written is very confusing. 
and yet to be proven. This is he's got to prove these this narrative in court, right? Right. This um, is just yeah. right. And this document seems to be about an examination of a conflict of interest on the part of a law firm representing somebody in the in the, in the Durham proceedings, which I also don't entirely understand. So. Uh, it is not an indictment. It is not, but it is a narrative, and it was decided to make this narrative public. And um, I don't know what to. So, uh, well, the obvious thing to start with is that this is a huge story, one way or another. This is a special prosecutor appointed by the attorney general. Uh, the current sitting attorney general did not end. Maybe he can't. I don't know what the, the technical. Did, you know, did not end this investigation. He's been doing it now for a year and a half, Durham, and um, and he has now made an, an unbelievably explosive allegation that on behalf of this effort to sort of nail Trump, that somebody was using electronic access to the executive office of the president, which should terrify anybody and everybody, whether it was Obama or Trump or whatever, a private company, a tech executive, and obviously some kind of ends justify the means theory used some backdoor method to get information out of white house servers about Donald Trump, whether that was the Obama servers or the Trump servers, it should make no difference. In fact, if I were a Democrat, I would be horrified beyond belief to think that it was the Obama servers. I understand that they want to get Trump and they think Trump is evil and therefore any effort to get Trump is probably fine or justified, but um, first of all, what that what this reveals about what, you know, what people might be able to if you can penetrate the computers of the of the executive office of the president, where are we? How safe are we from any from the Chinese or 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 the I mean, we're not safe like this is very big. Well, which is why I think the right is absolutely correct to go crazy over this, um, especially because you, the story is being covered absolutely nowhere in the mainstream media, with the exception of Fox News and uh, the New York Post. I haven't seen anything on it. And given that it is potentially so explosive and given that it is as confusing as it is, um, how can there not be? I mean, we know how. But it is an outrage. It is a scandal in itself that there is not wall-to-wall -wall coverage of this and trying to figure out what is going on here. Anybody? No. What's What's your take? I don't have one. I'm. Uh, I really am not. I don't, I'm. I'm waiting more information to formulate any sort of opinion on this thing because none of it makes a whole lot of sense to me, and it sounds like. I mean, there could be a lot of substance to it, but what I'm privy to right now sounds like vaporware. It's just, it's it's muddying waters and making indistinct allegations with an explosive potential that is not well substantiated to my view. And the explosive potential is dominating the discourse rather than the allegations. And that to me is a big red warning sign. Uh, so let's talk about media hypocrisy for a minute because or, you know, media media scandals for a minute, because um, we are due. We might be due today for a verdict in the uh, Sarah Palin defamation trial against The New York Times. She uh, sued The New York Times after an editorial came out the day of the congressional softball game shooting 
that attempted this both sidesism game of saying, yeah, yeah, this guy came and he shot up the congressional softball game because he doesn't like Republicans. But of course, in 2011, Sarah Palin may have encouraged uh, Jared Lochner to shoot up to shoot Gabby Giffords and others with her famous mailing that had a target on it. Uh, and um, this uh, very interesting drama going on inside the New York Times because the person who was responsible for inserting the sentence that connected Palin, this Palin incident that didn't happen because Jared Lochner did not see the Sarah Palin bullseye target thing and had no played no role in his uh decision to shoot up uh to to in, in arizona um that it was james bennett the the editor of the editorial page at the time that inserted the sentence into the editorial which was not there when the draft was submitted to him by its author elizabeth williamson and of course bennett then two years later was fired for the or two three years later was fired for the evil crime of publishing tom cotton's op-ed uh that made everybody feel so unsafe the one that said that uh the authorities should uh you know should uh, put down the black lives matter riots um and uh james bennett then went to the stand and basically defended critic attacked himself said it was his fault he did it nobody else did it he did it but it wasn't malicious he didn't mean it it was it was a terrible error and it was an error that he inserted and they removed it the day after and they apologized and uh but um but it wasn't the new york times's fault it was his fault now that's very nice of him given the fact that he's been humiliated and his career destroyed and his livelihood ruined um, by a disgusting institution that, you know, threw him literally to the wolves, maybe not literally, sorry, <laughs> figuratively to the wolves. Um, but, uh, but it's interesting because the New York Times' defense isn't that they were right. The, the, the defense is that they were wrong and not even that it was an honest mistake because they don't even claim that it was an honest mistake. What they claim is that it was not reckless it was a mistake, but it wasn't reckless. And that in any case, she wasn't harmed. That Palin wasn't harmed by the publication of this editorial. She can't prove that she was harmed. She can't prove that there was any financial cost to her. And that as a public figure, uh, you know, there is this much higher standard for proving libel or, or defamation. Reckless disregard for the truth. There's a sort of tripartite scandal, uh, to tripartite kind of set of rulings um, uh, malice of forethought uh and her claim basically is of course the new york times had malice of forethought it's the new york times i'm sarah palin they hate me and they just pulled this out of their ass in order to somehow you know uh, make it clear that the the left shouldn't be uh, held responsible for what happened in the shooting at the congressional softball game well, there, it's a really weird legal. I mean, the legal argument is its own thing, but it's a very strange argument in general for the Times to make. They're basically saying our liberal bubble is so thick at this point that we actually can't we, 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 we don't even recognize when we write something false and potentially malicious. 
because it's just how all we we just assume this is how everybody thinks. I mean, it's a very strange uh, standard for them to adopt. And she's right that I mean, she can you can look through and see the, how the coverage of Sarah Palin as a candidate, for example, uh, looked from the New York Times perspective. And I I do think it's dangerous for them to travel down a path where their defense of themselves is that we are so in our bias is so entrenched and so recognized as entrenched that you can't call it malice when we trash a conservative. That's a that's not a standard I think they want to embrace right now. We know how all this happened because the process, the discovery process made all these internal communications public. So we know what the decision making process was in airing this allegation. Um, the day of the congressional shooting, um, the uh, former editorial board member Elizabeth Williamson asked, are we writing on the congressional shooting? At which point Bennett replied, yeah, I don't. It's hard to imagine that Bernie is guilty of incitement here. I'm paraphrasing. Um, is, and then he says, quote, is there any evidence uh, of the kind of inciting hate speech on the left that we or at least I have tended to associate with the right? For example, the run up to the Gabby Gifford shooting, we should deal with that. So then he asked if anybody on the editorial board staff or any op ed writer had written anything on the Gabby Gifford shooting and said, no, Frank Rich did. And Frank Rich did link the allegation that Loeffner was not, he said he was acting on his own delusions. Um, but then there was this pack thing that was included in it. And then so Linda Cohen brought this up, the whole notion that uh, Sarah Palin was involved in, in incitement here or something like that. And then they had this graph and it was just kind of thrown out there because they, they wanted to find some evidence that um, the left, if the left was guilty of inciting violence politically, then the right, you know, should be doing that as well. At which point, so Eric Wimple at the Washington Post, who's been covering this very closely, wrote about this. And his conclusion was that the impulse on the part of the New York Times to be so fair and so nonpartisan was to establish a, led them to establish a false link between Sarah Palin's dialogue or her, her you know, her martial metaphors, as we obsessed about at the time, and actual violence. And what this does is just indict both sides' journalism. So really, you shouldn't even try to be nonpartisan and fair and establish weird parallels because they can lead you astray, which is just license for left-wing journalists to be even more left-wing because sometimes both sides journalism is just a dead end. It's, it's, it's um, you know, intellectually dishonest. Where in this case it was, but most of the time they don't need a permission structure. They don't need some sort of a, a license to be partisan and unfair and hackish, but that's what this is becoming. This is becoming a more license to just be more, more of a hack. I mean, I think most important is this was an editorial. So editorials obviously have greater leeway because they are expressions of opinion, but using an expression of opinion standard to say that you can misreport a fact is very dangerous. And it is, it is, it, it poses a great danger to the to maintaining and sustaining, you know, this is something that I've spent my life doing is writing opinion in in newspapers, and uh, factual accuracy is necessary in order to ballast and support the idea that your opinion can be expressed fairly. So, one of the so if you sort of follow the logic here, uh, Bennett said I made I made a terrible mistake. Because I said that she was somehow, you know, involved in she should be blamed in some fashion or other for the shooting of um, the shooting of Gabby Giffords. But I didn't do her any harm. 
We didn't do her any harm. So the most important editorial page of the most important newspaper on the planet Earth can say anything about anyone. And unless they can prove that she was materially done harm, which is a tort standard, right? That is a, that, that, that's, that's the standard by which you determine damages for something, right? Which is she lost income. She lost, you know, she, her, as opposed to the idea that um, you, you're not allowed to say false, you can't say that somebody incited murder and then say, well, I said that she incited murder, but you know what? Her life went on just fine afterwards. So you can't hold me responsible. I don't know what's going to happen in this case. These cases are, I, I'm a mix, I have mixed emotions about it. Abe, you have something to say. Well, but I mean, I think it's kind of ridiculous to say that no harm came to her in the, in the sense that the purpose of a political opinion page is to um, help uh, those causes and people that uh, the the opinion writer supports and to harm the the causes and people that it doesn't, right? I mean, you, you're there to sway events in the real world. Um, so sort of claiming that, uh, no, what we write actually has is floats above reality and, and doesn't come into contact with it, I think is a, is a sort of strange, unjustifiable defense. It's also bizarre to say that the opinions about Sarah Palin as expressed in the pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post don't have an ongoing effect on her reputation. They obviously do. Now, there may be a jujitsu boomerang effect where because they say it, then that she can use that with conservative audiences to say, you see, I'm a martyr. They don't like me. But the simple fact of the matter is that if they praised her instead of attacked her, she would be a more viable political figure than she is now. And when they attack her and say that she was, you know, guilty of, uh, you know, of, 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 of incitement to murder or involved in some sense in some form of incitement to murder, of course they injure her reputation. I mean, they're not helping her reputation. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're making an accusation that, like, I went, I have edited stuff at newspapers and I went through various courses in in at various times in my life in how to avoid libel, how to avoid doing things that are libelous. And the most, the simplest thing that you learn is you cannot allege that somebody was involved in a crime unless they were arrested or named or charged or named in a document as an unindicted co-conspirator. You cannot do that. That is almost, that is a trigger for libel. Now, again, being famous vitiates a lot of that because of the New York Times versus Sullivan decision that created a much higher standard for libeling famous people or people in the news or something like that. But there are things you're not supposed to say that, in, that are libel or defamation. defamation. And the, mo the, mo the biggest is saying that somebody was guilty or involved in a crime when they weren't involved in a crime. Well, that is just prima facie libel or defamation in almost any case. 
Well, and this all should be understood as well in the context of the times we're living in now with regard to media and claims of misinformation and harm, because these are the same outlets that are constantly warning readers about how spreading misinformation is going to kill people, or you can't say this, or, you know, or actively suppressing true stories because the, it could do some sort of political damage to, to the side on which most of them are on. And I think that's actually really important here in thinking about what is and is it? I mean, she's talking about her personal harm, right? But there's a broader harm in terms of trust and what information is allowed to be out there. I mean, look, I've read like 10 stories about how supposedly Trump flushed papers down the toilet or something. I've read like a ton of those. If I don't see just as many stories about this Durham controversy, for example, I am being uh, given a kind of information stream that has a very particular political purpose. And I know that as a consumer, I read everything on the right and the left and even the crazy, crazy stuff on both sides, because, but most people don't have the time to do that. So it's the absence of what's included. It's this claims of misinformation when something is actually inconvenient information. And I think her case should be seen in that broader context. So we'll see what we'll, 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 we'll see what happens, but I mean, we just have these, uh, you know, what's interesting is one of the, one of the uh, features in the, in the case is a, is a, email that Ross, our friend Ross Douthat sent to James Bennett on the night that the editorial came out saying, people on the right are going crazy. What, what is the matter with you? You can't, you know, what, what are you saying? Which meant that somebody in the New York Times, meaning Ross Douthat, who is a person of unconventional opinions inside the organization, knew perfectly well how dangerous um, and how a fraud this was, and therefore, and he was not consulted because people like him aren't consulted. And you know, if you had a broader mandate and a broader, uh, you know, set of editorial eyes on things, like Barry Weiss's when Barry worked there, maybe somebody would have seen something and said something, and therefore they committed this. Even if she is not, even if the Times is not found guilty or whatever, you would find it, you know, liable or whatever. Um, that is not, that does not mean that they didn't do something terribly, terribly wrong here. And they did. And Bennett said it. And that's the funny part is that, look, I'm, as I say, I'm of mixed minds. I, I, my, my hope, given my selfish, self interested hope in these cases is that, is that. Uh, libel standards are applied as liberally as possible because I don't want us to get sued. I don't want to get sued as a right. I don't want to sort of open that door up. It's very, you know, it's kind of frightening. On the other hand, you know, fair is fair. And you're not supposed to go around saying that people were responsible for somebody's shooting when they weren't. And that's bad. And that's bad for our society. And it is bad for the New York Times. It's bad for the business. It's bad for for everybody. And you know, but you know what's not bad? What's not bad, my friends, is the X chair. The X chair is so not bad because I'm sitting in one right now uh, having this conversation and it is so comfortable. It is so comfortable that you guys have got to understand it is the luxury supercar of office chairs. It has that dynamic variable lumbar support that just cushions my lower back and makes life sitting in, you know, at a desk chair just so much easier. And I can warm myself up this morning when it is freezing cold in my apartment with the uh, LMAX uh, temperature uh, controls, or if it were really hot, I could cool myself down. I could cool myself down with the same controls exclusively designed and made for X chair. Take my advice. Try X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. 
go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. That's xchaircommentary.com. And let's talk about our friends at Bambi. You know, that this is that great uh, business that helps you get an HR manager you know, for as little as $99 a month instead of having a full-time $70,000 a year HR manager on staff helping you deal with wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, all of that. Those HR issues can kill you, but Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to help provide a dedicated HR manager to craft HR policy and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month, available by phone, email, or real-time chat. For on, From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance, and this is month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now. To schedule your free HR audit, that's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, do we have anything to say about the constant invocation of the almost immediately imminent Russian invasion of Ukraine? Because now the uh, British foreign minister is saying it could happen at any moment. People have been ordered out. The you know American staff is out. Uh, Troops are massed on the border, and yet the uh, the German prime minister is in Kiev today, and there's still talk that maybe we can we can show Putin that the cost is going to be so insanely high he should rethink himself. Anybody have any thoughts? Because like this is really kind of crazy. It's now been like a week or ten days of they're about to go in at any moment. Yeah, some thoughts. Um, you're getting some signals now from um, the foreign ministry in Moscow saying, you know, we're going to still talk. Talks are ongoing. There's not going to be any war. Could be de-escalatory. I mean, you're hearing it from the media, too, Russian media, which is usually a reliable indicator of what the Kremlin's going to do. Could be de-escalatory. Could just be more confusion ahead of what they want to do. Um, last week, we were talking about a provocation in and around this this period, the 14th through the 16th, is what um, what we heard. They were going to do and you can't do this forever it's very expensive to move troops and keep troops stationed along the border things break down people get sick it costs a lot of money so you it's can't cold. maintain this. It's, it's really cold. really really cold. can't maintain this level actually it's warmer uh, unseasonably warm in, in ukraine for this time of year it has been for a while which is one of the reasons people are like ah oh, the ground has to freeze i can't move in mud which is somewhat true not entirely true but it's somewhat true um so maybe there's a lot of bad luck that the russians have been experiencing nevertheless um, I don't think that we can expect them to, to de-escalate um, with, with the kind of rapidity that we would need in order to you know, make the crisis go away. Nevertheless, they're sending some positive signals. Who knows? Um, I think that's the point, is to just you know, keep everybody guessing. That's strategic ambiguity. So that's what they want. Um, but the signals that we're sending by saying invasion imminent, invasion imminent, invasion imminent, um, is reportedly to the consternation of Ukraine to deny um, Russia the uh, potential to say, well, this provocation happened and we're going in defensively. By saying all this up front, we're giving them no space 
to make the claim that this is a defensive action. We want to make sure that it's offensive action, um, which Ukraine really hates because they're saying, you know, like, calm down. They're sending this calm down message to which American um, observers who think this is all overdone and also don't want us to have anything to do with defending Ukraine say, look, Ukraine says nothing's going to happen. What are we doing? Why are we, why are we, you know, pumping up the the, the fear here and increasing the atmosphere of uh, of concern and apprehension? And they can't comprehend the notion that Ukraine maybe has a national interest in not depressing economic investment, in not suppressing domestic economic activity, in not convincing the West to stop sending arms shipments because their cause is lost already. I mean, that's what they're doing. And people in the West who are invested in the idea that we have nothing to, we should have nothing to do with NATO's borders and, or, you know, the far flank of NATO and should be with retrenching are saying, look, even Ukraine says nothing's going to happen here. What are we doing to ourselves? Um, It's a lot of short-sighted, motivated reasoning and short-sightedness on their parts. Abe. Well, I just want to add to the, um, you know, yeah, there are some, um, sort of vague signals that could be read as de-escalation uh, on, the, on the Russians' part. Um, at the same time, reportedly, Joe Biden's phone call with, with Putin uh, was not particularly enlightening, successful, did not move anything from where the situation had been beforehand, which that's is not so, encouraging. That's so amazing because, you know, as we know, um, according to Biden, Putin, the last person that Putin wanted to be president was Biden. Putin does not want Biden to be president. He said that like over and over again in 2019, because he, unlike Trump, he was going to be woof, so tough. It was going to be so tough. He was going to be so tough on him. Yeah. Well, you know what? If, 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 if Putin thought that he had a lot to fear from Biden, we wouldn't be in the, I mean, that's just, that's just axiomatic. We would not be in the position we were in if Putin were afraid of Biden he is not afraid of how could anybody be afraid of Biden? Joe Manchin's not afraid of Biden. Kirsten Sinema is not afraid of Biden. AOC isn't afraid of Biden. Ain't nobody afraid of Biden. So he's, uh, you know, he's really done a great job of using both soft and hard power as a as a signal from, you know, from from the from the American president. Um and to move on uh, to what he said to Lester Holt uh, last night in the famous, uh, yeah, you're a wise guy, huh? Interview uh, where he acted psychotically in relation to the question he should have a ready answer for, which is what are you going to do about inflation, which you said was transitory, something that any rational political figure would have pre-planned and had a kind of, you know, we're going to do everything we can <laughs> to mitigate the effects of this on the American people because we understand that this goes to everybody's pocketbook and but I'm empathic and I feel your pain and all of that. No, it's Lester Holt's fault because he's a wise guy. And Lester Holt asked him about mask mandates and what did he say? He thinks it's probably too soon to stop wearing a mask. Probably. Can I just share with you the fact that if it's not a certainty that it's too soon to stop wearing a mask, people shouldn't have to wear a mask. And no one did at the Super Bowl this weekend. And most Democratic leaders have not been wearing them for for, for actually throughout this pandemic. Many haven't. It's actually not true. The children who were performing there. They were masked. They were masked. 
They're the only ones who are masked. But let, 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 let me just finish this like very simple thought, which is the masking should be the exception, should be the radical exception to the ongoing daily life of the country. And therefore, the probability standard should be if it's probably too soon, you should still lift the mask mandate because there shouldn't be a mask mandate. The mask mandate is imposed in times of extreme need and extreme necessity uh, because of the utter you know, danger to everyone and not, yeah, let's keep it on a little longer. And of course, that the famous standard of the, oh, yeah, well, why is it so hard? It's so hard for you to wear a mask. I don't see it's so hard for you to wear a mask said by people who probably aren't wearing masks most of the time, which is, you know, um, it is becoming increasingly difficult not to be scornful and enraged about this. I, I've spent the last two years bending over backwards, trying to understand the emotions of the people who are, who are trying to consign us to this permanent, uh, state of affairs, but um, there was a kind of amazing piece in the Atlantic. I know it's our favorite neurotic uh, publication, but this um, astounding piece. I'm trying to find the uh, where was it? Oh yeah, how to reclaim normal life without being done. It is called by I believe it's Catherine Wu who's been writing this stuff. I just want to read you one passage. I know you're all sort of already with me on this. Probably a lot of you are listening to me. Um, but um, here it is. Nearly every expert I spoke to for this story pointed out that the possibility of taking risks, small and large, still remains heavily predicated on circumstances. For example, having the means to find and purchase tests and high-quality masks or to work from home and the luck of being healthy or young or hosting a functional immune system. Healthy and young, by the way, would mean every child in america pretty much so i don't really understand why if that's the case then the risks aren't being taken by having them take off masks but when making choices lemay of johns hopkins told me that it helps to remind herself of the potential good that small actions can do for those who can donning a mask taking a test skipping a gathering i don't think it's asking for a whole lot she said when those costs are stacked against the protection that others might gain Others might gain. She doesn't think that it, you know, is a whole, you know, just, gee, well, how exactly, why does she get to determine that, that it's, that it, it, it's, it, it doesn't cost that much. I, I don't understand that standard. It's very peculiar. Nor is it entirely clear what benefit it affords the, the, you know, the unlucky and unfortunate among us <clears throat> who are perhaps immunocompromised or have comorbidities that may render them especially vulnerable. How are they served by you truncating your social life? Skipping a gathering, she said, skipping a gathering. How are they advanced by your, you, how are the condition, you know, made better by you not doing something? It's, okay, I got it's it. a weird sort of allyship. It's like the, it was like during, you know, the Black Lives Matter summer where everybody was supposed to put the sign on their lawn and say the right things. And every corporation did this. There's now this weird kind of public health allyship compulsion among a certain class of people that I wear the mask just to show that I care about the, the, the weakest among us. It's weird. I certainly okay. understand it as, a, as self-flagellation, as an expression of faith. But I don't understand it as an articulation of a public policy that uh, you know, advances, materially advances someone else's condition. Okay, so here's, an, here, here's the detail I was actually looking for. Alison Buttenheim, 
a health behavior researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, told me she met a close colleague for an indoor latte and donut, one of the first times she'd been able to enjoy her friend's company in two years. The social and professional return justified it, she said. The latte donut date was also carefully timed and placed at a cafe that checked vaccination status and kept tables spaced far apart in a city where case rates have been dropping. This small act, given the circumstances, felt for the first time in a long time and this is this word is now italicized. Okay. So I'm like, that's insane. That is really crazy what is being said there. So she can have latte and a donut inside. She gives herself that right because the cafe checks vaccination status. She lives in a city where vaccination rates are high and the tables are spread far apart. And that's okay for her first time in two years. Okay. So I'm like, who is Allison Buttonheim, PhD, MBA? Who just, who, who is she exactly? So I will now read you from her page at the U, uh, Penn Nursing uh, University of Pennsylvania. The section of her CV page called Social Justice. Health behaviors are stronger predictors of health outcomes than genetics, environmental factors, or even access to medical care. Through her research, teaching, and community-based practice, Dr. Buttenheim is keenly interested in identifying and dismantling mechanisms that produce social disparities in unhealthy behaviors. In the U.S., she has studied how to implement incentives-based smoking cessation programs for pregnant Medicaid members who currently don't have widespread access to these evidence-based strategies. You mean like television commercials that say you shouldn't smoke when you're pregnant. In her work, that's me, by the way, editorializing there. In her work on the National Academic of Science, Engineering, and Medicine's Committee on the Equitable Allocation of COVID-19 Vaccine, Dr. Buttenheim joined others in calling for preferential allocation of limited vaccine supply to communities hardest hit by the virus, Dr. Buttonheim was one of the founding members of Bold Solutions, an initiative to dismantle racism and advance black health. Along with Amy Summer and Dr. Chris Chesley, she chairs the joint Chibe Pair Committee on Anti-Racism and Social Change. So she's a walking cliche and she had a donut and a latte and it felt okay. It felt okay because she, a walking cliche, a kind of progressive parody of herself was finally able to have a donut with somebody spread far and wide. And this is the kind of person whose existence, whose existence and views are the reason that Joe Biden says it's probably not time yet to take the mask off. This is the world in which we're living, in which that person has more sway than 75 million kids under 18. Give that a moment's thought, and we will be back to you tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.